If you've got your Bibles, do this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Corinthians is in the New Testament. You got the four Gospels, then Acts, then Romans, then 1 Corinthians. And um, we have been walking through this letter that Paul wrote to this church. And he begins by telling them, hey, you guys... Man, you guys are saints. God has done a tremendous work in you. Um, and, and it's so exciting to celebrate. I thank God for everything that he's done. And then he proceeds at about chapter 1, verse 10, all the way, um, well, past what we're going to look at today, uh, saying, but you guys have gotten a bunch of things wrong. You have no idea who you are. And so he wants to help remind them who they are. Now, let me just by word of uh, uh, a PSA, all right? I sent out an email earlier this week that said, hey, this is like PG-13. So, if um, uh, in case you didn't get the email, I am letting you know it is PG-13. Most of the people first hour set and didn't breathe or twitch or blink an eye. Um, like, nobody wanted to give away anything. Like, you know, they were worried if they smiled or laughed, somebody might think, oh, I'm talking about them. Um, here's what you, let me let you off the hook. I, yes, I'm talking about you, all right? So, yeah, just not like any tell. You don't have to worry about that. I, I already know I'm talking about you. So, um, let me do this. I want to, uh, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. We're going to start in the middle of the chapter. We, we did the first part last week. I'm going to start in verse 12, and I'm going to go to verse 20, and then we're going to walk back through um, these verses together. And I want you to see what it is that Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Well, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both, and one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? For as it is written, the two shall, will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, with whom you have, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, help us this morning to hear these words. Father, speak right to us that we would see. Um, Father, are there places we need to be convicted, to feel the conviction? 
of your word. Father, don't let us miss your grace in the midst of this as well. But that you'd use your word this morning. Your, your spirit would use your word to transform us. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So a couple of things about this passage to help us know how to read through it, all right? And this, is, this will be helpful for us. Um, the, the, the first thing that I want you to notice is that in most of our translations, in fact, I think every translation except the New American Standard, all right, has quotation marks uh, in uh, verse 12 and verse 13. So notice with me here in verse 12 where it says, all things are lawful for me. That is in quotation marks. And then it says it again, all things are are lawful for me. And then in verse 13, in quotation marks, it says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, let me tell you why that's in quotation marks and how it's going to help us to read this. What, what Paul is doing is he is answering some of the um, sayings or the uh, the slogans or the, um, you might this is the bumper sticker theology that the Corinthians had adopted and borrowed from the world. This is what the Corinthians would say. All, all things are lawful for me. And then Paul will say back to them, but not all things are helpful or beneficial. Well, all things are lawful for me. Yeah, but I, I will not be dominated by anything. You, you see what's happening? They're, he's addressing their worldview. He's addressing the things they were claiming about themselves. The things they were claiming were compatible with Christianity. And he says, no, that's not right, or that's not the whole story, or you can't say that without a qualification, all right? So, so this, is, this is what's going on. That's the first thing that you, that you need to know. Here's the second thing. The word sexual immorality, it's in verse 13, it's in verse 18, it is also in, uh, if you, you know, went back to earlier in the chapter, it's in verse 9. It's also in chapter 5, verse 10, and verse 11. That word, sexual immorality, it is the Greek word pornea, and it is a general word that means this, okay? Let me make sure we understand what sexual immorality, the word pornea, means. It means... Any sexual activity that takes place outside of the marriage between a husband and a wife, or because it's 2023, it's probably, I probably need to also clarify, a husband and a wife who is a man and a woman, okay? I mean that. So, Anything that happens outside of, so anything sexually or uh, with, with that level of intimacy that happens outside of the, the marriage of one man with a woman, 
Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. Which means it applies to anything sexual outside of marriage, whether you're married or not. It applies to real life. It applies to the virtual world. It applies to pornography. Any sexuality or sexual activity that's not between a man and a woman who are husband and wife. And so Paul is going to use this example in verse 15 and 16 about being joined to a prostitute. And that's because it's culturally relevant uh, in, in that day. I mean, that was a prevalent thing that was taking place. And there's some argument that it was socially acceptable, especially in, in Corinth. And I say that to say, if you're a loophole kind of a person, all right, so you're here this morning and you're like, yeah, 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 well, I mean, I, I'm not doing that, so I'm probably okay. Um, let me just say, no, that's not how it works. You're doing this wrong, all right? Anything that happens sexually, with intimacy, outside of marriage, anything, anything outside of a man and a woman married to each other. This is what pornea covers, all right? This is what Paul is talking about. So, look with me. Let, let's go back. Let's start at 12, and let's walk through this real quick so you see what, what Paul's doing here. And so, um, all things are lawful for me. This is what they're saying. And Paul answers. He says, yeah, but not all things are beneficial. I mean, you can say all things are lawful, and Paul is certainly the apostle that reminds us, you know, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ sets you free. Paul is all about freedom. He is all about uh, the freedom that the gospel brings to us as believers. And yet, what the, uh, the Corinthians were doing, they were taking whether it was Paul's words and distorting them or taking what was coming from the culture around them and saying, ah, yeah, everything's, you know, we can do anything we want. And he says, no, not, not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial. Not all things are a value add to your life. And then he repeats it again. All things are lawful. He says, yeah, but I won't be dominated by anything. Here's what Paul's saying. He says, there is a way that you can exercise freedom or perceived freedom. There is a way that you can exercise your freedom that actually becomes slavery. There is a way you can say, look, I'm free to do anything, and you let anything there is that comes your way have reign in your life, and now you find yourself a slave to that thing that has come and promised itself as freedom. This is what he says. You think that's an act of freedom. And by the way, sin when it comes into your life, whatever that sin is, it never comes and advertises itself as a slave master, by the way. Sin always comes as your friend. It always comes and sort of nestles up next to you and says, hey, I, how's it going? How you doing today? It never comes looking like the slave master that it is. All things 
uh, are lawful, Paul says, but Paul answers and says, but yeah, not if you're dominated by it. Not if it's something that's taken hold of you. That's not freedom. That's slavery. And every sin that comes your way, Satan's attempt to bring you back into slavery to him, by the way. He's going to bring it up later in, in chapter 10, verse 23. He'll say, do the same thing. You know, repeat that all things are lawful there. He'll say, but not all things build us up. Not everything's beneficial. It certainly isn't if it dominates me, becomes a master over me. It's not good for me if it doesn't build me up. This is, this is what he's saying. Now, in um, part of what's behind this, is the, uh, they were saying, look, we can do whatever we want. We're free to do whatever we please. Um, and Paul says, no, that's not true. You're not thinking about this rightly. Now, look at what he says in verse 13. He, he repeats another one of their sayings. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. He, here's what, he's, what they were saying by this. They were saying, look, God has given us these appetites. He's built these appetites into us. So, we should satisfy these appetites when we desire, whatever those appetites are. Listen, they're just biological urges, Paul. We all have them. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. When you lust, you indulge it. When, when you have a craving, you satiate it. Paul, it's just physiology. It's just biology. When you need sex, have sex. It's just an appetite. It's the way of the jungle, Paul. It's the nature of animals. And we're, I mean, look, true, we're evolved. We're more evolved. We, we have a language. We wear clothes. We have jobs, drive cars. But at the end of the day, we're just animals. We're free. The body's just the body. Here's the thing. They had a worldview, or let's narrow this. They had a view of being a human being. Huh? Their view of being a human being went something like this. They said, look, there is one part of us that is material. All right? We have a material existence. There's also a part of us that is an immaterial existence. We have a body and we have a soul. We can put it that way. And, and the body, they would say, it doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is the soul. Now, this goes all the way back to Plato, hundreds of years before this, and actually probably before Plato. And it has, it has endured to this day. The body's just a body. And there's two options with how to manage this body. One is that, well, it has appetites. That's perfectly natural. So we indulge the appetites. And you see 
that all over culture. There is not a television show that you will watch that does not have that worldview. There's hardly a song being written and sung on the radio or on the wherever they are now that doesn't have that worldview behind it. Now, the other way you deal with it is this totally other extreme, and this is, this is typically where you see um, religion get involved, right? Or, or, or uh, you know, whatever religion it is. And, and lots of religions tend to uh, approach the body this way. Look, the body's bad. The body needs to be tamed. The body needs to be transcended. We need to, what we need to do is we need to get outside of all of the body's needs. We need to deny the body. It's this extreme asceticism. The body's bad. And the body's going to do nothing but get you into trouble. And our whole goal in life is to transcend the body. And one day, finally, we'll leave this body and our soul will go back to the great collection of souls or whatever it is that you believe. For Christians, sometimes it's taught this way. You get to shed your body. C.S. Lewis, who I love C.S. Lewis, by the way, but famously and wrongly said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. No, no. You are a body and a soul. Our goal in life is not to shed the body and then the immaterial soul goes and hangs out with the other collection of souls, you know, on clouds with little fat baby angels. That's not the future. All right. Paul, he's not buying into either one of the, either side of the dichotomy. He's not buying into the attitudes of the day. Paul is actually going to ascribe a dignity to the sexual relationship, to sexual intimacy. This God-designed, God-created in the context of husband and wife. And so that's what he's doing. And he's doing it to the end of this chapter. He's going to do it all the way through chapter uh, 7. He is going to raise the elevation, the dignity, the function of human sexuality between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. And so let's follow Paul's thinking through this, all right? So, verse 13, um, they say, well, food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God, and God will destroy both one and the other, and that's probably part of their slogan. Paul turns around and he says, look, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. I don't care what your argument is. It's not meant for sexual, uh, sexual immorality. It's not meant for pornea. But, and now Paul is going to begin his defense. For the, uh, but the body's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your body is for the Lord. 
They'd say, no, look, all bodily functions are equal and basically irrelevant for life of the future. What's the problem? Why not sex for the body and body for, the se- for sex? And Paul says, you're dead wrong about that. The body's not meant for pernia. The body is meant for the Lord because the body is not destined for destruction. The body is destined for resurrection. And the proof of that is in the next verse. Look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Here is Paul's first argument. You're wrong whether you take the view of culture or you take the view of the ascetics. You don't understand what the body is. Let me tell you what the body is. The body, your body's for the Lord. And the Lord's for your body, by the way. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus was resurrected from the dead and you also are going to be resurrected. He is thinking of the whole person. The work of redemption, the work of salvation, it includes all of who you are, and that includes your body. You have been stamped for eternity as a believer, destined for life forever, and that includes the body. And in 14, he talks about the resurrection. He's thinking of all that God has in store for the body of men and women. Women, The body is permanent. We are to experience the resurrection of our body. Listen, there is no talking about the resurrection of, of uh, Christ without talking about the resurrection of his body. A body that, by the way, he still has. Seated at the right hand of the Father. It is the body that came out of the grave. It's the same body that went into the grave, only now glorified. But the same body. See, there's continuity. I know it might disappoint some of you. Kind of disappoints me. I'd really like for my glorified body to be over six feet high. I just want to be able to dunk a basketball. But there's continuity. Now, it's a body that's not sick. It's a body that's fully healed. It's a body that's going to be fit forever. But it's, a body, it's your body, and your body is going to be resurrected. So Paul's saying, look, you have a view of the body that's entirely wrong. You think it's just some husk that's going to be cast off for the next life. But he's going to talk in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the longest chapter in all of this letter, going to make the defense that the resurrection of a body, completing this redemption of body, soul, and spirit. Listen, we can never understand salvation as some escape from the physical world. It's the resurrection of the body. It's this essential element of what it means for us to be believers, what it means for us that we will exist forever in the presence of God with ears and eyes and noses and mouths and arms and hands and fingers 
will exist forever in our body, glorified and refashioned for eternity. That's the point of what he's saying in this verse. If you engage in pornea, you're harming the body. That's the first argument. Now look at what his second argument ends up being. In verse 15, he picks back up. He says, don't you know? It's kind of his device here. It's now the, the, the fourth time he's asked the don't you know question in chapter 6. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Your bodies, he says, are members of Christ. Now, he's going to expand on this even more, but let me just say it this way. Those who are in Christ, you have been united with him in a relationship, an intimate union. It means that your physical body no longer belongs to you. Your body belongs to Christ in a manner that is like what he talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, you know, of the, of the bodies of a husband and a wife belonging to each other. In fact, he's going to make that explicit in the, in the next chapter. So, so pornea is not only committing an act of infidelity to Christ, but it's also taking Christ, uh, t- taking something that belongs to Christ and linking it with the sphere of what is unholy. And he's going to put an exclamation point on that in verse 16. He says, or don't you know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, now he's talking about, he's remembering, listen, we're members with Christ. We're united with Christ. There's an intimate unity with Christ, why would you use your body to create a union that's unholy? Because don't you know what you do with your body is of eternal significance? When he says one flesh, what he means here is, it's not just just talking about the the skin and the ligaments and the tissue. It's the whole personhood. And, And what he's speaking about is there is a transformation that goes on, a uniting at the deepest level. Paul is saying that, listen, sex is meant by God to be the full giving of one's entire self to whom you belong. Paul is transcending all of the views of his day and our day. Paul's saying, listen, God didn't invent sex simply to be this like, you know, um, necessary evil as a mode of procreation. This, This is not only why he created it. He's also, you know, not saying that sex, you know, here's the deal. Here's what sex is good for besides making babies, which is good, you know, do that, but only when you're necessary. And he's also saying, listen, God didn't even create it as a way of self-gratification or self-expression. 
It's so much more than that. It's designed to facilitate this mechanism for intimate transformation. That's why Paul in Ephesians 5 speaks about the marriage in an analogy of Christ and the church. And here, Paul's showing us, look, there's a relationship you have with Christ that when you engage in this pornea, you, don't you see how incompatible this is with who you are? Sex was God's way, inventive way. For you to be able to give yourself so deeply to someone else that you're married to, that it results in this transformation in your life. You're not just you're not just two people anymore. You're now one flesh. Paul's saying, listen, you must never have a physical oneness without whole life oneness. I mean, Paul's elevating this deal. I had an elder after the first service, and I won't say who it is, but run up after the, the, the service and say, man, I love sex. Sorry, I might have just given that away. And then he said, you know, we were, we were at this deal. He was telling me about a story, and he said, yeah, we're a couple of us guys and a few of us guys sitting around eating at this restaurant, chicken fried steak. One guy goes, man, I like that. I love that chicken fried steak. That's better than sex. Another guy looked at him and said, well, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Paul has this high view of it to be celebrated. Listen, the church, I know the church gets a bad rap. People say, oh, the church, they're anti-sex. No, no, no. We're all for it. We're f- we're the, we're the biggest proponents on the planet for what God's designed and created in the context of how God's designed it and created it. At the same time, there's more to say than just this. You know, if you're single, Paul's not finished with the story here. If you're married and And that's not synced up in your marriage. Paul has more to say about this. So so this isn't just a one-off, but Paul's going to continue this conversation into the next chapter, all right? So so hang with me for these couple of weeks. Here's what one writer says. Let me wrap that bit up. He says, you must never get physically naked and vulnerable with someone without becoming vulnerable in your whole life. You must not become physically vulnerable, and hold on to your own independence. You must become legally, economically, socially, emotionally, in every way committed. In other words, you give up your independence. And if you do that, and this whole body giving is done in the context of this whole life commitment, there is this deep soul connection that is facilitated by the body and it results in transformation. And this is what Paul said. Why would you do that? 
with anyone else than the person you've committed your whole self to for your whole life. Because that's how you are connected to Christ in this transformative way. This is how Paul sees it. Now, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is, he's building upon that. He's saying, look, this is how that works. Verse uh, um, 18 um, he says, listen, you sin against your brother. Flee sexual immorality. Flee pornea. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He's saying this. When you have sex outside of marriage, you're abusing, you're dishonoring, you're actually destroying this incredible, you know, life-shaping, whole life-transforming mechanism that God has put into place. You give your body to somebody, or in some cases your mind, without giving your whole self. You're destroying this commitment, intention, design that God has built. It's built to do deep and radical transformation in you. So Paul says, flee, run away. He's probably got Joseph uh, running from Potiphar's wife in his mind when he says it that way. Verse 19, look at this, or do you not know? That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Whom you have from God. You are not your own. The word there for temple. There's a couple of words you can use in the New Testament. This one, the, the, the focus, of the, the picture that he's painting is. That it's, the, it's the part of the temple, the holy of holies. The two you are. It's, it's the place God dwells. See, Paul's been saying to the Corinthians since chapter 1, verse 10, you don't know who you are. That's why you're playing around with these things. That's why at the beginning of chapter 5, you're turning a blind eye to incest that's taking place in the church. That's why at the beginning of chapter 6, you're playing around and you're taking each other to court and trying to climb the social ladder. And you're doing that in the context of the culture and the world around you. You don't know who you are. The temple of the Spirit of God. You're the holy of holies. God dwells in you. And Paul is not speaking here abstractly or metaphysically. He has your body in mind. It's where the Spirit of God dwells. Don't you know who you are? That's what he's saying. The answer of the Corinthians, if they were honest, no. 
No, I guess we don't know who we are. That's what Paul's saying. Don't you know who you are? Verse 20. For you were bought with a price. What's the price he's talking about? It's the shed blood of the eternal Son of God. You have been bought with a price. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know? You belong to God. Where his spirit dwells, that's who you are. Flee all that nonsense. Let me wrap up. Here's the deal. I, I know when you when you go through a section like First Corinthians six. Verses 12 through 20. It's not a person in here that this passage does not touch. It's nobody in here that, you know, gets away from what it's saying. There's not a person in here that doesn't have shame or complexity or regret or history when you think about your sexual life and past, or maybe your present, there's nobody that this does not touch. And it's easy, it'd be easy to walk out of there and go, man, I wish that I heard this 20 years ago. Wish I wish I'd got this a long time ago. Wish, wish I understood what Paul was saying. I w- I want you to know he's writing to a bunch of people who he called saints in the very beginning. So I'm going to celebrate everything it is that God's done in you. It is so great to hear. And then he turns around and says, but you guys have no idea who you are. Please. Please stop doing the things that you're doing the way that you're doing them. Because they're so out of character and so out of sync with who you are in Christ. The great news is that God can come to you right now in this moment, just like he does in Hosea chapter 3 and 4. He tells the prophet Hosea, here's what I want to do. I'm going to make a picture. I want everybody to know who I am. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to marry the gal in town that has the worst reputation, that has a sinful sexual past. Her name's Gomer. And then you're going to marry her. And guess what? She's going to cheat on you. She's going to betray you. She's going to leave you. She is going to absolutely break your heart. She's going to end up a, a temple prostitute. But then I'm going to want you to go to that temple. And that spouse who betrayed you and was unfaithful, and chased every other guy in town, I want you to buy her back and bring her home. Because I want my people to see who I am. 
And it was casting a picture forward for us so that when Jesus comes, despite our wayward hearts, despite us leaving him and chasing after other gods, he came to earth, he died on a cross, he rose again to buy us back and to bring us home. So if at any point you wake up in the middle of your mess, you can look at the cross and see God who's saying, I love you more than you could ever possibly imagine. Come home. Come home. I'm going to close with a little bit that Ray Ortland wrote in a book called The Death of Porn. And so let me just say to you, I commend it. I think you should get this book and read it. And, and, and I'm giving you the perfect excuse. Here's what you can do. You can buy the book, you can read it, and then if anybody catches you reading it, and they go, oh, why are you reading that book? You say, oh, the, my pastor told, told me to read it. I... Right. All right. Here's what, listen to this. Since our king lived for us the royal life we should have lived and died for us the shameful death that we should die. At the cross, God did not sweep our evil under the rug, but exposed it and paid for it. The love of God is not a cheap compromise. It's forgiveness. That's why when God washes you clean of all your sins in the blood of Christ, you can allow yourself to feel forgiven. Feeling new is the right response to the cross. Freedom is what God wants for you. The cross was the price he was willing to pay. You can accept his grace with a clear conscience. Maybe you look at your mess and think, God had any self-respect at all, he must despise me. He'd be wrong not to despise me. But that despairing thought keeps you hanging back from God. Self-punishment doesn't make you more forgivable. It blocks your way to forgiveness. He's inviting you to come out of hiding and stand tall again. He's not at war with you. Why? Because you aren't really all that bad? No. But because in one blinding moment of painful atonement on the cross, the dark energy of your evil forever lost its bid for supremacy in your life. Do you really think after the cross, your shame drives God away? No. Your shame is precisely where he can recreate you the most gloriously. You think you're disgusting to him? Wrong again. The worst things about you are where he loves you the most tenderly. He's proved his commitment long ago at the cross. So now you know why you can have your glory back. Not because you have what it takes, but because he does. Not because you haven't damaged yourself that badly, but because Jesus restores your dignity that decisively. Your evil cannot have the final say over you once you have handed it 
over to him. He's not angry. He's not sulking. He's not holding out. He's got skin in the game, literally. He's personally invested in seeing you flourish. When you come to Jesus for the forgiveness you don't deserve and the recreation you can't cause, here's why you can run to him. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. Don't try to figure that out. His, his big heart makes no sense to our puny brains. All we can do is receive his grace. All you stand to lose is what you hate about your life anyway. So here's the simple prayer anyone can pray. Lord Jesus, I need nothing less than a new me. I need nothing less than your salvation because of your son, Jesus. I need nothing less than to be born again, made new. I need nothing less. Hey, I invite you to do that this morning. If you're sitting here and you go, I don't know. Didn't know that too I was. You can tell him, I didn't know. But now I do. This is who I am. Bought with a price. The temple of the Spirit of God. United with Christ. I all of me belongs to him. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you do those things in our hearts and minds. There's somebody here this morning maybe that they've never done that. Never thought of themselves being able to belong to you. Not as a as a slave, but as someone who's loved, intimately united and joined with you. They've spent their whole life trying to be good enough for you. And Father, I pray this morning they would see more clearly than, than they've ever seen anything. That it's not about what they can do. It's about what you've already done through your son, Jesus. Father, for all of us, would you remind us, just like you were reminding the Corinthians, this is who we are. Because too much of the time we walk around, and we don't act like that. We don't live like that. But Father, we want to. We want to experience the transforming joy of intimacy with you. And so, Father, do that in our hearts and our minds and in our lives today. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.